Well, good morning, beautiful people. It is so good to join together again in this space. You know, I think with all of the, one thing I love about the rhythm of church is that it happens every seven days, that there's a Sunday, that there is a rest, that there is a Sabbath every seventh day. And, and so for me, that is very comforting to sort of know the rhythm of life, like Sundays, bam, and Sundays, bam. And I, I feel like it is a, a church always for me is a sort of reset of the events that happened and now we take a breath and we remember who we are. And then we go back into the world and by the time the seventh day comes back, we are fried <laughs> and frazzled and messed up and we come back to church and we take a deep breath. And so I love that. And I feel like the way that the world is now, maybe, maybe we need more than Sundays. Um, maybe we need like church every other day because like we got to face that day and that day was so much we need to reset again. It used to be like five days. Okay, I can deal five days. Now it's like one day. One day. What's going to happen tomorrow? Okay. <laughs> That's sort of the way that the world is. But thank you for being here today. And as we take a deep breath and breathe in and remember that we are human, remember that we are children God. This week I um, follow, you know, I, I have a bunch of people in my, in my social media feeds, I mean, thousands, and um, it, it, you know, I don't know them all, of course, but I always, it's always interesting to see kind of the rhythm of what people are saying out there. I always like that. And I heard so many people say this week that, um, and I have a lot of, you know, pastors and Christians and folks, and, and if, you, if you're a pastor and you don't speak to what happened this week, then you don't deserve to be in the pulpit. I'm like... I'm so sorry to disappoint you. If you tune in today and, um, and that's what you're looking for, I'm really sorry to disappoint you. And maybe, maybe it truly is that I don't belong doing this. But I think that we, um, as people, have become people who only know how to condemn one another. That for everything that someone does that we don't like, we quickly condemn them and tell them how they are wrong, how they are not doing what is right by us. And I think we have forgotten or to ask the question, why do we do what we do? Why is this happening in the first place? And how are we complicit in that thing that is happening even if we didn't do that thing? I think in a lot of ways we have lost ourselves as people and we need to be redeemed, all of us, all of us. I think we have misplaced our faith to where we have come to see the political realm as the solution to the world, as the thing in itself that can solve the deepest human problems that we encounter. But we should know from the story of history that it cannot, that it is not designed to do that and does not hold the ultimate power to be able to do that. I think maybe we have put our faith in the wrong place, all of us, and made an idol of the thing that we want to be part of so deeply. 
I saw this quote. I got a bunch of quotes for you today. I got, I got, this sermon is basically just a series of readings from other people because, you know, other people are smart, and so we need to hear from them. So I, I saw this quote this week, and I just loved it. This week we're talking about baptism and, and, and Jesus' baptism. Today is the day that we celebrate the baptism of the Lord, and there's this quote. You either walk inside your story and own it or stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. This is Brene Brown. I want to read that again. You either walk inside your story and own it or stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. I like that because like, that's, a, that's the space that we find ourselves in to a large degree, isn't it? Like we're not good enough. That's what the world tells us. And we come to believe that we're not good enough. We're not on the right team. We're not doing the right thing. We don't have the right job. We don't have the right career. We're not the right person. We need to change. There's something wrong with us. We're not good like them. We're not good like them. We're not good like them. We don't have enough money. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And that is the story we constantly tell ourselves, right? And in that space of that being the story that we take on to ourselves, we comparing ourselves to the world, we're contrasting ourselves to other people that we, that we think that, that there is more that, that we have, that we have to attain something. We're not living in our story. And so in that space, we're having to hustle every moment, every day. We're having to, to do this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing in order to somehow make us ourselves feel like we're worthy. But that's killing us, isn't it? We become exhausted and we're split emotionally. Like we, we, are, we know who we are, but we've been told for so long that this is not who we should be. We should be something else. We should be someone else. And so in that space of trying to be something else, we are drowning, aren't we? You're you. You're you and that's beautiful. And that's lovely. And that's good and beautiful. You don't need to change. How about that? How about a pastor telling you, you don't need to change today? <laughs> That's something. Have you ever heard a pastor say that in all your life? Probably not. First time for everything, right? But maybe we need to stop telling each other that we need to change. And maybe we just need to embrace who we are. Who we are at our deepest level. Because who you are is who God created you to be. And when we try to live in any other thing outside of that, we're going to find our lives out of control. We're going to find us just constantly hustling and trying to be something that we are not. But I think the secret of life is to discover and embrace who you are. And that's your story. That's your story. But I think at a deeper level, maybe we don't even know who we are, right? Maybe that should be the adventure of life, to discover who we really are inside, to discover who God created us to be inside. That is a worthy undertaking. Not to try to undertake our life on some adventure to be something that the world has told us we need to be, but to undertaking the adventure of the journey of being who we really are, the people who God created us to be. I like that. I was reading this, um, this book that I got for Christmas. Um, it's called Sapiens. Have, has anybody, have y'all seen this or heard this? Yeah, a couple of you. This is fantastic. It's like, it is a, a brief, brief, whatever, um, a brief history of humankind. And I'm reading it slow. It's one of those slow reads because it's pretty, it's interesting. And I'm on like the, it starts, in the, basically, 
the evolution of homo sapiens, of humanity, and I'm at like right now 30,000 years ago. So it's really fascinating and who we are. But I love this idea that, that he begins by saying like human groups, uh, humans, 30,000 years ago, found themselves that they could really only gather in groups of about 150 people. Like that was as much as people could function. Anything over about 150 in society a long time ago would begin to break down. It would, it would fall apart. It wouldn't work anymore. And I think it's interesting why he, just, he says that. He says that, that the reason is because humans only have the capacity to gossip about 150 people. <laughs> That's it. We can't gossip about any more people than about 150. Our, our, our limits are about that. And I love that. That's fantastic. Like, gossip. But, and I think what he means here is gossip is, is not like to tell uh, falsities or, or stir up trouble, but just to talk about 150 people, right? That's what he means. Like, did you know what Sally did? Did you know what Johnny did? Did you know? Like, we do that, right? I mean, that's it is essential, like, not bad gossip. That's just that's just talking about one another. So we could say that's like maybe um, neutral gossip. But it's like, but he says the only way that humans could get over that, to get over the 150 barrier, is that they created fiction. It's fascinating. Like they began 30,000 years ago to have the capacity to tell each other stories that weren't true, that were based in something else that their imagination and he's like once so so in order for us to break the 150 barrier we have to be able to tell each other fiction this is fascinating and that fiction together gave us a story an imaginative story that now we could get our identity from and so we wouldn't necessarily need to be able to gossip about 150 people because now we have a different story, whoa, to be able to live into. And he says, like, this is like the whole, uh, he didn't say this, but this makes sense to me. Maybe we'll get into it later. I'm only on page, like, 53. I just started this thing. It's so fascinating. And, and it's always like, maybe, like, the whole experiment of societies and nations and governments have to have at their root some sort of fiction we can give ourselves to. Some sort of story, a story, right, that we live into. And maybe that sometimes that story is true. Sometimes that story false. Sometimes that story has a little bit of truth, but a lot of not truths. But we think it's all true because it has a little bit of truth. I mean, those are the worst, right? And I think that's, that's the story of America. Like, we got a little bit of truth and then a whole lot of not truth that we conveniently forget about, but we live into this story of thinking that it's all true, and we give ourselves to it over and over and over and over and over again, don't we? Over and again. But that's how we live. That's who we are. That's how we do this thing of society. And so, like, what, and so in this day, as what in the world does that have to do with baptism? Well, maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. Let's see what Mark has to say. So Mark chapter 1 begins this way. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I love this. This is good. I would like to know that guy. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I and the thongs of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love, who I am well pleased. This is the word of God for us and all the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love this. This is great. Like, this is one of those things, like, this is, what, um, 10 verses. But there's so much here to begin this story. It's almost like this beginning of a story, saying if I was, if I was beginning a movie or beginning a novel, and I said, he stepped off the train and gazed upon all the travelers at the station, but suddenly his eyes met with her. His heart leaped, and finally they were reunited. Okay? So that's just a little line, right? That's just a little bit. But what, but what, what, like there's, you know there's more to the story, right? You know like, whoa, there's a lot more that's going on here. They, these, these two people have history. Where has he been? He's been on a train. Has he been on for a long time? Who is she? And why do, is she there waiting for them? Like, yes! Like there's so much, and here, there's so, like, this is just a little verse, and we can read over it and just be like, whatever, but there's so much here. Mark is like, I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give you a little bit of information that points to all the information that's behind. And, and so here, it, it, John the Baptist, we, we get nothing from, right? We don't know much about John the Baptist in Scripture, but it, it is clear, all the scholars say, John the Baptist was a big deal. He was like the one that revved people up, that got the movement moving, the movement moving. He got the movement moving, and, and he was... He was, he was not liked by the authorities. I mean, later he was killed, right? I mean, they took his hat off because he was, he, was, he was abrasive. Like, some people are like, Jason, you're abrasive. I'm like, I'm not as abrasive as John the Baptist, right? No one's taking my head. So, you know, chill out, man. And so here we, John the Baptist, and, and so it tells us that he was wearing, lived in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair with a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, like hashtag lumberjack right like here we are this guy is living outside of society he has but he has forsaken all the structures of the world he is now living on his own this guy is a revolutionary that's what john the baptist is he's a revolutionary he now he's and he's telling people come out y'all come out and be dipped into these waters and have your life changed come live like i am living Come renounce the power systems that are killing us. Give up on those things and embrace your true identity, your true story as the people of Israel. Come and embrace who you are. And he was always talking about this Jesus. And here Jesus comes. Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee. And I think that's interesting in, um, that Mark puts that in there because to us, we're just like, oh yeah, Jesus from Galilee, you know, Galilee, Galilee. But in the day, like Galilee was nothing. It was just like this, this little place 
that, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like saying, I mean, no shade on Benson, but it's almost say like saying, then Jesus came from Benson. And we'd be like, Benson? Jesus came from Benson? I mean, they've got a couple good barbecue places there, but like, what's, you know, what's going on in Benson? And like, it's a good place. I've heard of it. But like, we would think like, Jesus came from Nashville, right? <laughs> or Jesus came from New York City. Or Jesus came from Austin, Texas. But Jesus came from Benson? Like, okay, mm, that's not exactly like uh, wetting our appetite for like this Messiah person. I'm sorry if you live in Benson. Like, I do like Benson. Redneck barbecue. Oh my gosh. So good. Go to Benson just for that. And, and so like here Jesus is coming and surrendering and submitting. Not only like, like, so the question is, the theological question that we must ask ourselves here, I know you're asking yourselves here today in your seats or at home, you're like, but the theological question, Jason, is why does Jesus need to be baptized, right? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is sinless. Jesus doesn't need to repent of his sins. Jesus doesn't need to change. Jesus is the Messiah, y'all, right? So why, is, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Because Jesus is submitting in the same way of renouncing the power systems of the world. And in so doing, as Jesus goes down into the waters, it is not the waters that are cleansing Jesus. But Jesus cleansing the waters of all humanity, of all creation, through all time, so that we too can dip down into the waters, these waters, those waters, and we are dipping down into the redemptive waters of new life. I love what... Um, it says, there's this commentary on Mark. This is like, this is banned in about 14 countries. So um, it's pretty on fire. But it says this. It says, in a genuine act of repentance, as such it ends his participation, Jesus, in the structures and values of society. This is what Jesus is doing in some sense. This is what this guy says, and I like it. It concludes his involvement in the moral order into which he was born. The entire redemptive process of Jewish society as it, maintained, as it is maintained by the institutions through which power is ordered, the totality of the Jewish Roman social construction of reality has been terminated for Jesus. All the debts that have been incurred under the elitist ordering of power and its community life have been canceled. The death experience of repentance has redeemed Jesus from his comprehensive indebtedness and the prescribed ways and means of discharging his obligations. He has become wholly unobliged. Whoa, what does that mean? Here's what it means. The new creation begins with the renunciation of the old order. What is happening here in baptism is that we come, and Jesus comes, and John the Baptist, is, and this is what John the Baptist is calling us into, not to be saved so you can go to heaven. That's not what baptism is about with, with John the Baptist. Baptism was about you are renouncing that way of life and entering into, through the dipping down into the waters, into a new way of life. You have been living in, in Egypt as slaves under their regime, under their ideologies, under their way of thinking. And now you will cross through the Red Sea that has been parted for you and you will enter into a new land for which everything is different. In this land, in this land, 
All creation is made new because we live in the covenant of God's love. And those waters will recede and there's no going back. There's no going back. In the waters of baptism, we acknowledge that the systems of the world are broken. That the systems of the world will bring nothing but pain. That the systems of the world are killing us. And we go down into the waters to be cleansed from that system for which we have been born into. It is not a fault of our own. We did nothing. We're not sinners because we are born into the system. We are born into the system of sin. And we go down into the waters. And as we rise, we renounce the ways of the world, the systems of power and destruction, the systems of violence and manipulation, the systems of hierarchy and inequality, the systems of shame and hate and pain and exclusion and marginalization. We renounce them in our bodily commitment of going down into the waters and rising to life. And now we're on the other side. Egypt was on that side. The promised land is on this side. We've gone through the waters. Jesus here, in so many ways, is making a public spectacle of saying, I too am renouncing the systems of that order. Jesus is not coming to redeem the system from within, so to speak. Not coming to be Caesar, to be elected so that he can work his good and bring about change and positive change within the system. Now, now politicians do that, and that's fine and good. But this is Jesus we're talking about, right? This is, this is different. Can we be engaged in politics? Absolutely, be engaged in politics. Want to run for public office? Yes, of course I would say that, right? Yes, go do it. Bring about good, bring about change. But remember, those systems are broken and you ain't gonna fix them. You can help, but they're broken. We can use them and help them bring good to people, but they're fundamentally based in the ways of the world. Jesus here is saying, I am going to do something else. I am going to bring redemption fully. For I will not take on just the political powers. I, Jesus is saying, will take on death itself. The very thing that corrupts us the very thing that corrupts society. I will take on violence at its core. I will take on shame at its core. I will take on the institutions that thrive and use those powers to hurt others at their core. Jesus is coming for the core of all things. And so today we are reminded, right? We are reminded in so many ways that we have been baptized too. We've been baptized into this. And maybe we didn't make this sort of significance to it, but that's the significance that it has in it. When, when like, in, in the ancient world, as, as early church, they would do baptisms on Easter, and, and you would have to go through that, this whole confirmation process. It was, like, it was like years long, and you'd have to dedicate yourself to this faith, and you'd have to learn about it. And then, and then you would come on Easter, and you would come before everybody, and you would take off your old clothes and be there 
somewhat naked. I mean, I don't think people were really all naked, but like you would put on new clothes, like ragged clothes, and you would be baptized in the symbolic saying, I'm leaving that old life behind and entering into something new. And today we're like, you know, we're like, hey, cool, coming to church, you know, yeah, you believe in Jesus, yeah, cool. Um, basically, you don't need to do anything different, you don't need to change anything about your life, you don't need to do anything. You're just like, hey, here's some water, cool, yeah. <laughs> and that's like, like, I'm criticizing myself here, okay? This is not a criticism of y'all, this is like me in the church and what I lead too. Because I find that people just like, you, you go through that and like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go to that other Methodist church up the road. Like, they're not so crazy. But in, in the baptism, we say, on behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sin? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put, on, put your whole trust in God's grace, and Promise to serve Jesus as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to all people. According to the, yeah, I do. According to the grace given you, will you remain faithful members of Christ's holy church and serve as Christ's representative in the world? I do. This is a commitment that we make when we receive the waters. We are in some way saying, I renounce that old way of life, and I am entering into a whole fully different understanding of the way the world works, and I'm giving myself to a whole different system, a whole different Lord. No longer am I giving myself to the Lord of this world and its systems and powers. I'm giving myself to the Lord of creation, to God, to Jesus. I am being changed forever. That is baptism, friends. That is what we do. That is what Jesus led the way in, in showing us, let us do this thing together. I, I, like, um, I told you, it was just a series of readings today, just like kindergarten. <laughs> says, uh, again, I'm going to read Sachs to you, but, uh, Joseph Sachs, rabbi. And he says this, um, he talks about stories. And those stories that define us, and again, they're like, okay, I'm talking about the fiction, the stories, right? We're coming back to it. Which story are we going to live into? Which story are we living into? Are we going to give our life to? And so he's talking about this idea that, that we pass down to our children the stories of what has happened before. He says, because freedom is the work of a nation. Nations need identity. Identity needs memory. And memory is encoded in the stories we tell. Without narrative, there is no more memory. Without memory, we have no identity. The most powerful link between the generations is the tale of those who came before us, a tale that becomes ours, and that we hand on our sacred heritage to those who will come after us. We are the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, and the identity begins in the story of the parents tell their children. The narrative provides the answer to three fundamental questions every reflective individual must ask at some stage in their lives. Who am I? Why am I here? How then shall I live? There are many answers to these questions, but the Jewish ones are this. I am a member of the people of whom God has rescued from slavery to freedom. I am here to build a society that honors the freedom of others, not just my own. And I must live in conscious knowledge that freedom is the gift of God, honored by keeping God's covenant of love. Right? But so often we give ourselves to a different story. We say, I am an American. I am a capitalist. I am an entrepreneur. 
I am, insert your job. Ah, and, this, and we build our identity. No wonder we're in this problem as Americans. Because we build our whole identity on we, our Americans. And we understand that to be very differently. America is a very different place. If you're in this group of people, or if you're in this group of people, the story is different. But yet, here we are. I believe that on this day, as we celebrate and remember the, our baptism and Jesus' baptism, remember what this truly means. We must reorganize and reorient our stories from anything other than we are the beloved of God. We are here to live for something bigger than ourselves. We are called to live in God's covenant of love. I love that at the end of Jesus' story, that the heavens open up and declare as a dove, here is my son. You are my son. My beloved son, it says in another translation. I love that, beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That strikes me. Like Jesus hadn't done anything yet. I mean, he was like 30 years old or 29 or 31. We don't know. We'd like something around there. He hadn't done anything. But God says, you're my beloved. I love that. So often we think we have to do something for God, right? No. You're beloved. Already. Right now. That's your name. That's your identity. You are the beloved of God and God is well pleased. You are the beloved of God and God is well pleased. You are the beloved of God and God is well pleased. You don't have to be something else. You don't have to live in a different story. You don't have to do something else. You don't have to become something else. You're beloved just as you are. And God is already well pleased. Because you are God's child. You are God's child. And so we do these acrobats of our souls, right? And we try to live into different identities and we try to attach ourselves to this story or this story or this story. But all those stories will demand something from us, our allegiances. And so maybe the space that we need to enter into is that we let go of those stories today. That we let go of those other identities, those other allegiances, and we embrace our belovedness as our core story. Imagine what kind of society this would be if everybody at their core believed they were beloved, they were valuable, they were worthy, they were beautiful, they were great, and God loved you, and God loved me, what kind of society? Like, this would be a very different society, wouldn't it? But we react and we live out of our inadequacies or how we feel like we are inadequate or not enough. There's this guy I love, and um, I'm closing, maybe. And so um, there's this guy. It's called The Way to Love, Anthony DeMillo. It's a little book, literally. It's a little book. And this is like the 106 printing, and um, they don't print it anymore. He says this. I like this. This is going to be long, okay? But, you know, the book is, like, small, so it's really not going to be that long. But I'm going to read for a minute. Can I do that? 
I'm going to do it anyway. But thank you for your affirmation. He says this. Take a look at the world and see the unhappiness around you and in you. Do you know what causes this unhappiness? You will probably say loneliness or oppression or war or hatred or atheism, and you will be wrong. There's only one cause of unhappiness. False beliefs you have in your head. Beliefs so widespread, so commonly held, that it never, never occurs to you to question them. Because of these false beliefs, you see the world and yourself in a distorted way. Your programming is so strong and the pressure of society is so intense that you are literally trapped in perceiving the world in this distorted kind of way. There is no way out because you do not even have a suspicion that your perception is distorted, that your thinking is wrong, and that your beliefs are false. Look around you and see if you can find a single genuinely happy person, fearless, free from insecurities, anxieties, tensions, worries. You would be lucky if you found one in a hundred thousand. This should lead you to the suspicion of the programming and the beliefs that you and they hold in common. But you have also been programmed not to suspect, not to doubt, just to trust the assumption that you have been put into your tradition, your culture, your society. And if you are not happy, you have been trained to blame yourself, not your programming, not your cultural and inherited ideas and beliefs. What makes it even worse is the fact that most people are so brainwashed that they do not even realize how unhappy they are, like the man in a dream who had no idea he was even dreaming. What are false beliefs that block you from happiness? Here are some examples. First, that you cannot be happy without the things that you are attached to and you consider so precious. False. There is not a single moment in your life when you do not have everything that you need to be happy. Think of that for a minute. The reason why you are unhappy is because you are focusing on what you do not have rather than on what you have right now. Another belief. Happiness is in the future. Not true. Right here and now, you are happy and you do not know it because your false beliefs and your distorted perceptions have got you caught up in fears, anxieties, attachments, conflicts, guilt, and a host of games that you are programmed to play. If you would see through this, you would realize that you are happy and you do not even know it. Yet another belief. Happiness will come if you manage to change the situation you are in and the people around you. Not true. You stupidly squander so much energy trying to rearrange the world. If changing the world is your vocation in life, go right ahead and change it. But do not harbor the illusion that this is going to make you happy. What makes you happy or unhappy is not the world and the people around you, but the thinking in your head. As well, search for an eagle's nest. On the, you might as well search for an eagle's nest on the bed of an ocean as search for happiness in the world outside of you. So, if it is happiness that you seek, you can stop wasting your energy trying to cure your baldness or build up your attractive body or change your residence or job or community or lifestyle or even your personality. Do you realize that you could change every one of these things? You could have the finest looks and the most charming personality and the most pleasant of surroundings and still be unhappy? And deep down, you know that it is true, but still you waste your effort and energy trying to get what you know cannot make you happy. Another false belief. If all your desires are fulfilled, you will be happy. Not true. In fact, it is these very desires and attachments that make you tense, frustrated, nervous, insecure, and fearful. Make a list of all your attachments and desires. And uh, to each one of these, say these words. Deep down in my heart, I know that even after I've got you, I will not get happiness. And ponder all the, the truth of these words. The fulfillment of desire can, at most, bring flashes of pleasure and excitement. Don't mistake that for happiness. What then is happiness? 
Very few people know, and no one can tell you, because happiness cannot be described. Can you describe light to people who have been sitting in darkness all their lives? Can you describe reality to someone in a dream? Understand your darkness, and it will vanish. Then you will know what light is. Understand your nightmare for what it is, and it will stop. Then you will wake up to reality. Understand your false beliefs, and they will drop. Then you will know the taste of happiness. If people want happiness so badly, why don't they attempt to understand their false beliefs? First, because it never occurs to them to see them as false or even beliefs. They see them as facts and reality so deeply been programmed. Secondly, because they are scared to lose the only world they know. The world of desires, attachments, fears, social pressures, tensions, ambitions, worries, guilt, with flashes of pleasure and relief and excitement which these things bring. Think of someone who is afraid to let go of a nightmare because, after all, that is the only world they know. There, you have a picture of yourself and of all the other people. He goes on to say, happiness is only found in letting go of the ideologies that you have been formed in, letting go of the stories that have been causing you pain, that have been demanding your life, letting go. You see, I think we come to the waters of the Jordan and we look out upon the depth of the waters and we are deeply afraid of drowning out there, aren't we? But the reality is, standing on dry land, it is here where we are drowning. Drowning in the assumptions that we have been given, drowning in the lies that we tell ourselves, drowning in the inadequacies that we have been programmed to feel about ourselves, drowning in shame, drowning in pain, drowning in violence, drowning, 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 because we are attempting to try to hustle, to make ourselves worthy out here in this story, among these lies, and all that is happening is we are drowning. And it is only when we are brave enough to dip our legs into the waters, to go out to our waist deep and say to the Lord of all lords, take me down into the waters that I may be raised to life. I renounce that way of thinking. I renounce that way of being. I don't put my trust in that. I will not make the world an idol. I want to have new life. I renounce the powers of evil and injustice and embrace the other side of the waters. And in that space, we realize that letting go, that derobing of ourselves, that that is where happiness and life is found. Today, we're not going to do communion, which is basically a one-time thing of all year. This is the only time we don't take communion. Today, we are going to remember our baptism. And so, we do that by having some water placed on our head. This is a little weird and uncomfortable, and you know it might mess up your hair. I'm sorry. It may be a little bit cold. The water may drip down into your face or your eyes, and it may create some sense of small, little, tiny, minuscule discomfort. And I know we don't want that, but sometimes we need to remember who we are. 
And I promise I will just put a small little bit. I'm going to use, I'm going to use this thing, which I got in um, Russia. It's the Orthodox. I don't know the name for it technically. I'm sure it does. Basically, what the Orthodox do is they dip it in the waters and they fling it on you. I'm not going to fling it on you today. I'm just going to put just a little bit. And I'm just, as you come up, I'm just going to put just, I'm going to do this. So just a small few drops fall upon your head. I won't touch anybody with it because, you know, COVID and everything. And we won't transfer that. Um, that's good. But just small. And may you in that moment... Remember your baptism today. What stories, what lies, what ideologies are forming your life? How have you tried and hustled so hard to be something you are not and you are drowning in it? Today, remember these words. You are the beloved of God and God is well placed just as you are, just as you are. So let us join Jesus in the Jordan today and dip down into the waters and be made new.